You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. If you behave in a squirrely manner and you become a person of interest to a profiler, to a detective, well, maybe you should change your behavior. Nobody's saying you did it, but you sure look like you could have done it. Criminal profiler Pat Brown. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Have you ever had an incident in your life that completely propelled you in a whole new direction? Well, that happened to Pat Brown after a close personal encounter with a suspected criminal. She embarked on a whole new career, even though many people said she was too old for it, that she would never succeed in a profession dominated by men. Pat Brown became a criminal profiler, and a very good one. You may have seen her on TV. She's been on CNN and MSNBC, the Discovery Channel, and many other platforms. I met her in 2010 when she wrote a book about her experiences and some of the cases she's worked on. It was called The Profiler. And what you're about to hear about profiling in general and about Pat Brown's experience in particular, you're going to find fascinating. So here now from 2010, Pat Brown. Would I be correct in guessing that this goes a long way toward answering a lot of the questions that you get over and over? Well, the number one question is, how did a nice girl like you get into a business like this? That's that's the number one. And then it's, how did a woman your age get into, into this business? And then it's, how does a woman survive in this business when it's almost all men and we hardly ever hear of a female profiler? A lot of people wonder how I got into the business. And I, I ended up, I was a homemaker, I homeschooling my children when I rented a room to this unusual fellow who then I suspected in a crime four weeks later. Turned in evidence. The police ignored it. Took me six years to get the case reopened. And uh, then finally he was brought in, but uh, it was too late. No evidence again because six years had passed. So he that, that was the end of that. He's still the number one suspect. And then the last question is, well, you didn't go through the FBI and you, you weren't in law enforcement. Do you, do you have any qualifications at all? I mean, how did you do this? <laughs> you know, because there really aren't any programs for criminal profiling in the United States, except for the one I just recently finished developing for Excelsior College, which is a, it's a certificate program with five wonderful courses in forensics and crime scene reconstruction, criminal profiling, serial homicide investigation, and psychopathology. And I selected cases that you study through the entire course to learn everything you need to basically know about criminal profiling, but first one in the country. So when I started, there was not really anything. Well, all right. In that context, short of a couple of years at Quantico, what kind of qualifications do you need? Well, there's the problem. We really don't have any qualifications for criminal profilers in this country. We don't even know what they are, quite frankly. We have the inductive criminal profilers coming out of Quantico, the FBI. They have a particular technique, which I'm not overly fond of, shall I say. I love their research work, and I think they've done fabulously with that. And they do great stuff as a as task force. You know, when they go in and a crime has been going on forever and they get a task force together and they're dealing with all the evidence and tons of interviews and tips, this is all excellent. And they've done all this research over the years, the early guys in this business, Robert Ressler, John Douglas, those folks, um, they, they went out and they interviewed a ton of serial killers in prison, mostly white guys, which is where they came up with this idea that all serial killers were white. So sometimes research can mess you up. But they got a lot of information, which we all depend on. You know, and I studied all of that because you want to know this kind of profiling in the sense that you learn everything about the general general population of serial killers and psychopaths. But the problem is when you go apply that to a specific case, you cannot do that. You have to actually look at the physical evidence and the behavioral evidence in that one case. And with your knowledge, 
Yes, you have it behind you, but then you have to understand your forensics and you have to understand your crime reconstruction and you have to go through all of that in each individual case. And if you don't, you're guessworking, that's not good enough. So I use deductive profiling and that's a whole Sherlock Holmesy kind of method, which you have to very specifically identify everything you're looking at and why you're going to make that conclusion and don't just say, oh, it's a white guy, lives with his mother. How do you know that? Overlaid on all of that, is there a sense of intuition that you have to have that, that maybe just something you're born with, a, a, a sense of being able to read people? No. I, I don't like the concept of intuition because that's what we've been banking on before. And it's almost psychic. And that's where I went, even when I was studying, the, originally when I started saying, what can I learn about this? And I studied hundreds and hundreds of books and I went to seminars and I, everything I'd get my hands on. How are these guys doing it? And sometimes I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, well, I'm looking at this case and I don't come up with that. Are they just guessing? Well, the answer is yes. And they're, if you don't have to prove you're right because you never ca- caught the guy, well, then you can't say you're wrong. But no, not intuition but a good sense of logic. If you look back at Sherlock, Sherlock wasn't just using intuition. He had an amazing sense of paying attention to details and understanding what those details could mean and not jumping to conclusions. So it's the logic that you have to have behind it. And I would say this, a lot of experience, because if you don't understand something, you haven't had that experience, let's say, let's say a certain culture. Here's a good example. There was a particular crime that was out in... Um, uh, California, where uh, an Indian family's, a bunch of the family members were murdered by the daughter's boyfriend. Now, the question was, was this specifically a crime that was just an anger crime, a rage crime, because she was hin- Hindu, he was Muslim? Was there some kind of issue there? Or is he looking for some money? And I, I called up the police department, and I said, you just might want to check out the safe of these people, because they were giving a lot of money to the temple. And Many, many Indians, and we had a rash of robberies out in uh, Virginia recently where a whole bunch of Indians were targeted because they keep 22-karat gold in their safes. They love their jewelry, and that's their savings. I know that because I have a lot of Indian friends, and I spend time in India. But if I didn't, I would have not a clue of this. So this is, that's experience, whether it be experience with psychopaths, whether it be experiences working with rape victims, whether it be experience on the job as a detective, you learn things that then you put into your bank of references. But it's still logic. You can't just say, you can't just take one, oh, one time I saw this, therefore it applies. Not necessarily. You talk at great length in the book about the various media stereotypes, not only the nonfiction media, journalists like me, but the Hollywood media, you know, the movies and TV shows. Let me ask you, before we get into some of that stuff, what is the distinction between the profiling you do and the profiling that has become so controversial since 9-11, the, the kind of ahead-of-time profiling? We're talking about racial profiling in that particular sense with 9-11, that how do you look at somebody and decide whether they could be a terrorist, uh, and should we stop them at the airport? There was an interesting incident with uh, the very, very famous Bollywood actor Shah Rukh Khan. He was coming through New Jersey, and they stopped him because he was looked Indian, which he was, and he is Muslim, which he is, and they dragged him off, and they gave him like this hour-long grilling, and he kept saying, but I'm Shah Rukh Khan, I mean, I made 60 films, the most widely known actor in the world, except in America, and uh, and he was kind of perturbed, and then he had a movie coming out called My Name is Khan, and everybody's like, was this just a publicity stunt? Because it is about that, and it was just weird timing, but that's a different kind of profiling. And it's the kind the police do when people get angry. They say, well, you know, why'd you pull over my car? You know, you, you, just because I'm black, for example, and I'm driving, you know, out with my friends, why are you pulling me over? Well, it could be because when I'm working this neighborhood, I recognize certain vehicles are being used in drugs, certain behaviors, certain clothing, 
a certain time of night in a certain neighborhood. That's why. And there's some reason I can stop you. So I'm doing that. But it usually is because they've had so much experience that maybe they're looking at 90% of the time, this is what it turns out to be. But, you know, not always. So I, I say, you know, there's, you have to be careful with it because you don't want to just say, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm going to look at you because you happen to be like, for example, Shah Rukh Khan. You're just because you're Muslim. Well, he's also famous. So get over it. You know, <laughs> but, you know, if I always use this example. If I'm walking down the street and there's two groups of men, I can go to the right or I can go to the left. And on the right side, I being white, I can say, oh, look, there are people who look like me over there. There's a, there's 10 white guys. And on the left side, there's 10 black guys. But the 10 white guys on the right look like thugs and the 10 Guys on the left are Jehovah's Witnesses dressed in suits. I'm going toward the, toward the group of black gentlemen. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with how I perceive the safety factor. But it also comes back to what you were saying a moment ago about your experience, your knowledge. I mean, you understand in that case, more than likely, Jehovah's Witnesses are law-abiding people who are not likely to mug you. The guys who look like thugs probably will. Exactly. They probably, at least, at least a higher percentage. So this is what this kind of we call racial profiling, cultural profiling is. We, it, it sometimes is a necessity. I mean, we do have to make decisions sometimes in a very small amount of time, so we have to do that. But we won't, don't want to just do that with absolutely no reason behind it or to simply generalize, generalize about everyone for no reason. My profiling is strictly looking at cases, looking, doing casework, looking at homicides and trying to determine what occurred at the scene, what, what went down, what behaviors were there, what the evidence shows and who might, might have done it and help get better investigative leads. And that's what I'm also training law enforcement to do, to get them to do that when the case is young and so there might be still some evidence. After this short break, Pat Brown explains the fundamental difference between what she does and what the movies think she does. Now back to my 2010 interview with criminal profiler Pat Brown. What you describe in your book sounds actually so much more interesting than what I see in the movies where the profiler comes in, uh, you're looking for a 34-year-old white male who drives a Chrysler Imperial and his mother's last name was Snyder uh, versus what you do, which is meticulously putting the puzzle pieces together about a case that could be months, years old and Finally, when everything comes together, it's all like all the tumblers in a lock. You got your guy. It, it, it actually is more fascinating, but for some odd reason, they've gone down this other this other road, and and they want it to be more glossy. And of course, you have to have to have a chase in there someplace as well. But I think they like this the um, psychic part of it, where they want you to think that somehow the the serial uh, the profilers melding their mind with a serial killer, which which is interesting because people ask me that. Well, you know, you get inside these killers' minds. Uh, no, I actually don't get in their minds. I just study their behaviors and their actions. Uh, and do, do you do you have like bad dreams at night and you no know, do you get freaked out all the time i'm like no no actually no and they go hmm, maybe something's wrong with you <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know but no it's because you know I, I understand what i'm looking at and uh i know what the work is how useful the work is so you don't get all sucked into that kind of hollywood you know psych having psychological problems like you know jodie foster when she is it, no was it jodie foster oh yeah it was it wasn't was it in um uh, silence of the lambs and you know she goes in to speak to what's his name um <laughs> i'm over 50 he gets to be what's his name <laughs> But anyway, what's his name? So she goes... Fava Beans and Chianti guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, she's off with him running now. I think she's off on a little bit of holiday or someplace with him. But anyway, she goes in and he looks at her and he, he reads her mind really well because he, he's a manipulative psychopath. So he's really good at it. And he goes, I see you have this problem. You hear the lambs, don't you? Bleating still. Meh, meh. I'm thinking, fire the girl. She's having problems. <laughs> if she can't handle this and she's having problems from her childhood, 
get her out of there quickly. <laughs> All right. Well, let me uh, come back to something that you alluded to a few minutes ago. What is the measure of success of a profiler? Really, really lousy at the moment. And it's, not, it's, it's interesting. When, well, let me put it this way. It isn't that a profile isn't successful. Uh, when, you do, when you go back and you look at a crime and you do a really good job of analyzing all the evidence and you put together what occurred and who might have done it and have a good investigative lead, that is success. Total success. I, when you read these crimes in my book, uh, you'll find them fascinating, and, but you also you'll see how I thought it all through. But you'll say you should by the time you come to the end. He, that person she has named and why, I can really buy it. And now that he's a great, great person of interest. She's not saying he's guilty, but she's telling the detectives, take a look at this guy. Here's why and here's what you should pursue. I think this is a good investigative avenue. She's not saying that this proves he did it. And you, you, you go ahead and you investigate that avenue. If it ends up you can't come up with anything, that's, and then you don't. You go another way. But what really is the problem is that you – and the people see this. There's not a tidy ending in these cases. I was brought in way too late on almost every case uh, because they are cold cases. So people call me. It's been five years. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the law enforcement calls me, and you know, sometimes they they could give up. They just don't know what to do with the case. I'm like, okay, this one's just sitting here. Can you come and see if you can find anything? And I go in. I say, yes. Here's what I find. And they go, oh, well, that's really good. Wow, we we don't we can't go looking for evidence over there now. That's gone now. So then they go, thanks, bye, <laughs> thanks, bye. Let me hide this one. So we don't have a great success rate in prosecuting them. So my whole thing is, and I'm trying to get this point across. Yes, it'll work, but we got to get the profilers in in the first 24, 48 hours or the first week or get the detectives to learn how to profile. And I think I'm one of the few profilers who is not going to stand up and say, I'm the only one who can do this because I'm so brilliant. And therefore, everybody should see how magnificent I am. And okay, then how many cases can I work in my lifetime? You know, I'm going to be, I'm not going to get to them all and I'm going to all be totally burnt out. No, this is not magic. And I'm not psychic, and I don't have some amazing ability nobody can learn. I am a normal person who has studied a, a, a field, just like a doctor or a lawyer. We don't just have one doctor in the world or one lawyer in the world. If we did, we, well, we, if we only had one lawyer, we'd probably in good shape. But, but, you know, we really we need people to be able to do this for a great group of people. So we need lots and lots of profilers. So that's why I want to train and train and train profilers across the U.S., detectives across the U.S., so that... I'm just one profiler, and then we have many more who are working on all these cases that can bring more evidence to light earlier and get these cases closed and get the killers off the street. Now, you mentioned some of the real cases that you've worked on. Maybe we should point out, uh, apparently some people are missing the, the, the small type thing at the beginning of the disclaimer that you changed the names. You're not actually potentially libeling people by, by naming them as the suspect in a crime. There was a small unfortunate point here where, and, and I have to say, I had the same problem. I opened up my own book and I started reading it. I went, where's the page in the front that says I've changed all the names and the locations? And I couldn't find it. It is on the copyright page in the small letters. I don't know quite why that was done, perhaps because it had something to do with legal stuff. And that maybe was where the legal team wanted it. Uh, but yes, all the names, except for a few, have been changed in the book and we've changed locations and uh, mixed up a little bit here and there so that it's not obvious necessarily. But these are all real cases. These are absolutely all real cases, every one of them that I worked. And uh, I do say this is where I end up with this, but I state over and over again, just like any detective or any person when we're talking on television saying, I think that guy looks pretty squirrely, doesn't mean that he did it. I mean, I, I think of it this way. If you behave in a squirrely manner and you become a person of interest to a profiler, to a detective, or to the general public, 
well, maybe you should change your behavior. Nobody's saying you did it, but you sure look like you could have done it. So I, all the people in the book that I have come up with as possible suspects, persons of interest, are just that. I'm not saying they did it. I'm saying this is my theory of the case. It's only a theory. I'm not saying that anybody has, has done it. Now, you have to go through a court to prove something. But you did act kind of squirrely, so that's why you end up in that position. <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool if in subsequent editions you were able to say, since the first edition came out, we've solved this case, we've solved that case, we've solved this other case? Oh, that would make my day. I mean, I would so much enjoy hoping that these cases get reopened yet again or that they put more effort into it or that they actually – follow up some of the leads or find the evidence. But it is, I say, one of the biggest problems we have with cold cases is that we generally rely on DNA. And if you actually look at cold case departments and all of a sudden they say, we solved two cases this year. Well, basically you got a hit in the DNA bank. Isn't that what happened? You went back to a case that was 30 years old. Your, your killer didn't know about DNA banks back then and didn't think you'd ever come near him. He, so he didn't use a condom. And then what happens is he gets arrested now for a felony 20 years later, and they put his DNA in the bank, and it matches something he did 30 years ago. So, yeah, you got a hit, and I'm glad you did. But that's not the same thing as being able to investigate and solve a case within the first year. And that's why I say about Ted Bundy. You caught him, but how long did it take you? Green River Killer, 40 years? Hello. That wasn't too successful. Or, or BTK, 31 years? Yeah, we got him. Yeah, but how many people died before you picked him up? Now he's getting a – he's got his – um. Home, new old age home in the prison, so he doesn't have to pay his retirement bills. So that being that, that's basically what's happened. So we, that's not a success to me. I'm glad we got him, but that's luck. Let's get let, luck is fine. Don't ever don't ever mm-hmm. knock luck. But we want to increase our odds of catching these killers early by having skills and techniques that catch them rather than just luck. I want to tell people that it doesn't matter how old you are. Because I was over 40, uh, whether male or female, in a, in a field that you're not so acceptable in, uh, whether you come from a background that doesn't match where you want to go, um, don't give up on yourself. I mean, you can, you can, if you try and think outside the box and, and work at it and work at it and really never give up working at it because it won't come that quickly. My dad always said everything takes three times as long, costs three times as much, and he was damned right about that. <laughs> so, you know, I might have liked to have done this in five years, but it took me 15 years and drove me broke. But hey, I'm, you know, I'm but I'm making progress, huge progress. And uh, that's what, uh, you know, I want to tell people they can make a difference in society, no matter who you are, just eat well, uh, try to get some sleep, uh, and try not to do stupid things to get you killed. And then you might live to don't act squirrely. And don't act squirrely. But then you have many, many years to, to accomplish things. So never give up. Pat Brown is 67 now and still profiling the bad guys. And you can find easy Amazon links to Pat Brown's book at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with the woman who was the last lawyer to represent Ted Bundy, my 1994 conversation with attorney Polly Nelson. It's easy to show compassion for people that are deserving, but true compassion is shown when the subject is undeserving, and Ted seemed the least deserving of all. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman who turned her passion for weight management and fitness and nutrition into a multi-billion dollar business. My 1992 interview with Jenny Craig. People are always asking me, do you diet? I really don't diet. I eat everything I want, but I've learned to eat the things that are healthful. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.